Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Uh, this morning, we're talking about everyone's favorite topic, money. Uh, what comes to your mind, I wonder, when you think about money? Maybe you're a big fan, uh, like David Lee Roth, who said, maybe money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a yacht big enough to pull up right beside it. Or uh, Joan Rivers, who quipped, people say that money isn't the key to happiness, but I always figured if you have enough money, you can have the key made. Um, Perhaps you're more cautious, like the wise uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who observed that money often costs too much. Or uh, perhaps you're downright cynical, like Will Rogers, who pointed out that too many people work jobs they don't enjoy to make money they don't need, to buy things they don't want, to impress people they don't like. Uh, The Bible has plenty of things to say about money, over 2,300 verses. It's one of the Bible's most popular topics of conversation. From the positive, Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. Proverbs 21.20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. Uh, But typically, Scripture is more cautionary than that. Jesus warned us, you cannot serve both God and money. The Apostle Paul warned, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And Proverbs 11.28 warns, that whoever trusts in his money will fall. This morning in Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6, King Solomon is going to join the chorus of cautionary voices ringing the alarm, pointing out six problems with money, or to be more precise, six problems with looking to money to find your fulfillment in life, your purpose your worth. Remember, this is Solomon's driving question all throughout our study of Ecclesiastes thus far is this, why are we here? What's the point? He's searching for meaning and so far he has been searching purposely in all the proverbial wrong places, work, pleasure, social progress, social justice, power, popularity, politics, empty religious ritualism. But this morning, Solomon is going to take us down one of the most commonly tried but most bitterly disappointing paths in our collective search for meaning, and that's the path of money. Now, before we even get started this morning, it's worth noting that some of us may be tempted to tune out this morning's message and warning uh, for one of three reasons. Either you think you don't have money, You think you don't need it, idolize it, or you just don't want to feel convicted about it. Some of us view ourselves as not particularly wealthy, don't have money. According to the Washington Post and Forbes, however, even the average American today ranks in the top 10% of wealth across the globe. Um, Not to mention, we are 90 times richer than the average person throughout all of human history. If you could afford to eat breakfast this morning, 
under your own roof, your apartment, even a house, some of us, drive here in your own car and follow along on the Bible app on your own smartphone, you have money. And this sermon is for you. Okay, you admit, well, maybe I have money, but I don't idolize my money. I don't need it to be happy. I wonder if you would still feel that way if you woke up in the morning and it was all gone. You checked your bank account statement tomorrow morning and it read zero. Uh, stock market collapsed tonight, overnight, lost everything. You know, there's a man in the Bible who felt like he had his priorities pretty straight until he met Jesus. And Jesus told him to go sell everything he had so he would be unencumbered by the troubles of this world so he could follow Jesus freely. Again, I wonder if God the Holy Spirit whispered that same command to you or me this morning. Go sell everything. I'm sending you. Go be a missionary in a third world country. How long would we spend trying to convince ourselves that we just hadn't gotten enough sleep last night? Starting to hear voices. The truth is that none of us thinks we've got a problem with money until we start having money problems. And then we realize pretty quickly, as Philip Riken accurately diagnosed us, that we all suffer from at least an acute case of the potentially fatal disease known as affluenza. Or thirdly, perhaps you know you've got money, you know you love money, and you just don't want to hear about it. <laughs> you don't want to hear Solomon's words of exhortation this morning. The Bible says, the wise see danger ahead and avoid it, but fools run headlong into trouble. Don't be a fool this morning. Solomon wants to save you from a potential world of trouble, warn you the dangers of money, six dangers, loving money. Again, that's the problem. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Six dangers. Would you stand with me as you're able to so we can read from God's word together this morning? We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll start in verse 10 and go all the way through the end of chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he should go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation, sickness, and anger. 
Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and power uh, and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. But there is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet God does not give him, I know it's very sad, it's a grievous evil. And God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them instead. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, and yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for man? While he lives a few days, his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Or who can tell a man what will be after him? under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lamp unto our feet, light unto our path. God, your word illuminates the path that we're on, even when it's a dangerous path, a dead-end path that we need to be warned of, even when your word is exposing the the foolishness of the path we're on, the paths we vainly, futilely seek out for meaning and fulfillment and joy. Father, if any of us here this morning are on that path and need to hear your word this morning, I pray would you open our ears, unstop our deaf ears to hear your word, open our, our eyes to see your truth this morning, open our hearts to receive not just the conviction of sin, 
but a better way. Show us the right path. The path that alone leads to fulfillment and joy, rest, and pleasures forevermore. Show us Jesus this morning, even in this dark, difficult passage. Would you show us Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Problem number one with money is it can't fix your relationships. Solomon begins in verse 10 with a summary statement, thesis statement, his abstract for this entire section. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's vanity, it's hevel. And we're going to pick up this idea again of the insatiability of chasing money later in point number five. But here, it's interesting that Solomon begins immediately in verse 11 by shifting to talk about money's effect on our relationships. Perhaps that's because he still has relationships on his mind after last week, last chapter, chapter 4. You may recall, it's the one pursuit that Solomon actually gave a positive review of in the last five chapters. He said two are better than one, relationships. But now he qualifies that here by saying maybe two aren't better than one once money gets involved. Surveys consistently reveal money is the leading stressor in marriage, the leading cause of marital conflict. Solomon is noting here its divisive power is far more reaching than that. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. He observes, you know, isn't it funny? Money has a funny way of attracting all sorts of people to you. Win the lottery, you'll discover all sorts of fourth cousins thrice removed that you never knew you had. Definitely never knew you wanted. Come out of the woodworks. But Solomon says it's not a relationship they're after. It's not you. It's your money. It's what you have that they want. I don't know about you. I feel sorry for someone like Jeff Bezos. $144 billion dollars. Now he's divorced, and every single woman he dates for the rest of his life, he will always have to wonder, question, doubt, does she really love me, or is it the money? And according to Solomon, that doubt will drive a wedge in a wealthy person's relationships over time. Verse 11, what advantage has the owner of all this stuff but to see them, see all these so-called friends and family, with his eyes? I see a whole lot of people trying to get close to me, I, I can't get close to them because I don't trust them. So he continues in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's three ways you can interpret that. It's biologically true. Full stomach can cause sleeplessness, indigestion, throw off your circadian rhythm. Uh, it's emotionally true that wealth causes sleeplessness. Rich people have more to worry about more to lose, more to keep them awake at night, fretting over. But given the context of relationships of verse 11, I think it's possible Solomon's main point here, verse 12, is that it's also socially true. A full stomach keeps the rich person awake with guilt. You know, how do you sleep at night when you lay down and you pray 
Give us this day our daily bread, knowing full well your belly is full of three days' worth already. Just gorge yourself. Meanwhile, the neighbor next door is hungry. When you are in physical discomfort because you're such a pig, you just stuffed your face so much, while as many as nine million children, one in eight kids in America, might go hungry tonight. What do we do about this? Well, we try and tire ourselves out enough to get some sleep. Derek Kidner laughs. Our exercise machines and health clubs prove that one of our modern absurdities is to pour out money and effort just to undo the damage of money and ease. Money can't buy you sleep, and money can't buy you friends, at least not real ones. Problem number two, money won't fix your suffering. Sure, there are forms of suffering that money can alleviate. You know, it can buy you the bread to keep you from going hungry. It can buy you the medication to treat your illness. But Solomon's point here is that money can actually cause all sorts of other forms of suffering. It can be the instigating factor for suffering. He says in verse 13, there's a grievous evil I've seen. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. The implication here is that these are riches kept that should have been shared. And even secular social scientific studies show us that greed will make a person unhappy. Conversely, one of the best indicators of a person's happiness is their generosity. But he says, if the avarice doesn't hurt you, the relinquishment of of the wealth certainly will. Solomon asks, why bother hoarding all your money when you're just going to lose it all eventually anyway? If not in this lifetime, verse 14, then at least you will in the life to come, verse 15. Two, two things there. So verse 14, you may lose it while you're still here. And you have the, the heartache of having to watch it disappear right before your very eyes, right? In a bad, bad venture. Housing bubble pops, stock market crashes, your business deal falls through, your horse loses the race. Money can be unstable, volatile, so scripture warns us not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 1 Timothy 6.17, because money has been known to just sprout wings and fly away like an eagle toward heaven. That's Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. And when it does... As it did for this grievous man in chapter 5, your money will spoil your life twice over. Once in the selfish getting, keeping, and then secondly in the bitter losing. The only thing that ruined this man's life more than all of his hoarding of his riches and what it did to his heart in verse 13 was his squandering of them in verse 14. And that heartache is only exacerbated by the fact that he was a father, we hear verse 14, who is now left with nothing in his hand, nothing with which he can bless his son. Proverbs 13, 22 commends a good man will leave an inheritance to his children's children. By the way, this is as good a time as any to, for a public service announcement. That includes your spiritual children as well. You know, Jesus said, uh, who's my mother, my brothers? It's the spiritual family, it's the church. And so if West Hills is not yet written into your will this morning, Mark Johnson would love to help you take care of that. He's right there. He would help, love to help save you from the problem of some of your money. 
Because remember, you can't take it with you when you go. Verse 15, as you came from your mother's womb, so shall you go again. Naked as you came and shall take nothing that you may carry away in your hand. You know, the ancient Egyptians wanted to ensure that their pharaohs had plenty, had all the, the, the resources and, and, and riches that they would need to enjoy the afterlife. And so they used to bury them in ornate garments with, uh, you know, their finest jewelry, expensive oils, perfumes, and vintage wines. Do you know how we know all this? Because they didn't take it with them. Because we dug up a pile of bones with a bunch of stuff around it. Purses don't pull U-Hauls. And the rich fool knows this, and that's why he's left miserable in verse 17 when he's banked it all on his money. All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, frustration, anger, and sickness. As Derek Kidner puts it, if anything is worse than the addiction that money brings, it is the emptiness that it leaves. Here's how the great J.C. Ryle summarizes this vicious cycle progression that we see unfold in verses 13 through 17. He says, money brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. It might solve some problems, but it's going to bring a whole host of others with it. There's the trouble in getting it. There's the anxiety in the keeping of it. There's the temptation in the use of it. There's the guilt and the abuse of it. There's the sorrow in the losing it. And then there's the perplexity in the disposing of it. Or listen to how uh, Randy Alcorn paraphrases each one of Solomon's warnings to us just from verses 10 through 17 thus far. I'll, I'll read the verse, reread the verse, and then read his paraphrase for you. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. The more you have, the more you want. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. The more you have, the more people, including the government, haven't even gone there, will come after it. Verse 12, the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Verse 14, I've seen wealth lost through some misfortune. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And verse 15, naked a man comes, naked he departs. The more you have, the more you will leave behind. Or as the great... Biggie Smalls, even more succinctly, summarized it for us. Mo money, mo problems. And that brings us to problem number three. Money won't fix your joylessness. Solomon actually concludes chapter five and all of his gloom and doom talk about money on a bit of a positive, hopeful note. Verses 18 through 20 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all your toil. A phrase might sound familiar. Solomon has commended this to us three times already in chapters 2 and 3. He's actually going to repeat that refrain three more times in the chapters to come. Verse 19, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil he says this is a gift of God. Solomon notes, and I think this is important for us to, to, to appreciate this morning, you know, sometimes we recognize that wealth and possessions are good gifts of God. That's true, but sometimes we fail to even recognize that even the power to enjoy them 
to appreciate them. That in and of itself is a God-given gift. I like the analogy that Warren Wearsby offers. He says, next time you uh, pray before you eat your food and you thank God for your food, make sure you thank him for your taste buds too. Because without them, all the finest food in the world isn't worth a hill of beans to you if you don't have the power to enjoy it. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Solomon has already lamented at length how life here under the sun is hard, it's heavy, it's vanity. But now he says, but I found an analgesic at least, a numbing agent to help you get through it, the pains of life. It's called contentment. Learn to be content with exactly what you've got, whether it's little or much, and you will not only survive life here under the sun, verse 20, you may even actually enjoy some of it along the way, verse 19. See, the question isn't how much money you've got, but how you regard whatever money God has seen fit to bless you with. If you are not content living on $500 a week, you won't be content living on $5,000 a week. And conversely, if you are content with $5,000 a week, you can learn to be content with $500 a week, like the Apostle Paul, who said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment isn't about what's in your wallet. It's about what's in your heart. And yet, how you, what you do with what's in your wallet is going to reveal what's actually in your heart. And here's the sad irony that Solomon has discovered about it. He says the more money you have, the harder it is to actually be content. That's the paradox. That's the irony of money. The more of it you've got, the harder it is to find that elusive contentment. Like John D. Rockefeller, wealthiest man of the modern era, like he admitted when a reporter asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, which million that you have earned was your favorite? And he replied, my next million. Because as chapter 6 opens now, we read, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives all this wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. See, there's not a direct proportionality between a person's wealth and their enjoyment of wealth. As a matter of fact, if my personal experience is any indication, and if Solomon's words here, God's word is any indication, there's actually an inverse relationship between the two most of the time. The most grumpy, spoiled, entitled, miserable people I know on earth also happen to be the wealthiest. And conversely, the most joyful people I've ever met in my life were probably the orphans in Guatemala that I met on missions trips there in high school when they served me far more than I ever served them, who had absolutely nothing materially speaking, but everything spiritually speaking, a fullness of joy that I have not witnessed in my two decades back here since then. We need to be careful feeling too sorry for folks who are less fortunate than us. 
Sometimes I wonder who is truly less fortunate. For the man Solomon witnesses here, chapter 6, we find out exactly how unfortunate he was. And it was death, ultimately, that robbed him of his opportunity to enjoy his riches. Verse 2, so a stranger enjoys them instead. It's vanity. It's a grievous evil. It ought to remind us of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 12 about the man who was so prosperous, so fortunate, they ran out of room to store all his many crops, and so he tore down his barns so he could build bigger ones and hoard it all and store up enough food to last him the rest of his life. Not knowing that God would demand his life of him, take his life from him that very night, Jesus asked, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be now? Let me just make this really practical for a second. It is foolish to live for your retirement unless you're retired. If you're here and you're retired, by all means, carpe your diem. Uh, eat, drink, and find enjoyment in your retirement. But if you are in your 20s, your 30s, 40s, 50s, early 60s, uh, do I need to keep going? Economy's bad. Uh, and, you, and your quality of your life is dictated by the number beside your 401k statement, you're a fool. I'm not saying you shouldn't save for retirement, Proverbs 6, 8, 21, 20. The Bible clearly endorses the idea of saving. But don't waste your life always looking ahead to a future you're not even promised. Sure, save for the future, but live for the present. We need to take life as it comes to us, as God gives it to us graciously as a gift, an undeserved gift, one day at a time, and simply enjoy it. That's his point. Money makes it hard to do that. Problems number four. Problem number four, money won't fix your restlessness. Money cannot bring you the rest, verse five, the true rest Rest for your soul, verse 3, you so long for, because friends, the hole in our souls is not a money-shaped one. As St. Augustine famously testified, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Verse 3, if a man fathers Here's Solomon's version of the parable. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and also he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Apparently this man was so restless, he he must have not been able to stand to go home at night to his family, leave his work at the office, take a break, so much a slave of the earning of all that money because when he died at the ripe old age of 2000 Solomon is painting a hyperbolic picture here to emphasize to us this point all the money in the world all the years longevity in the world all the the children in the world all the marks of that that was success in the ancient world 
That's like the trifecta. Bunch of kids, bunch of money, live a bunch of years. Solomon's point, it's not the quantity, it's the quality. Because out of all his hundred kids, none of them cared about him enough that they could even be bothered to arrange for a simple burial for him when he died. It's the ultimate disgrace, ultimate dishonor in Solomon's day. And so Solomon concludes, a stillborn child is better off than he. Because verse 5, at least it is at rest. You know, October is Infant Loss Awareness Month. Having lost three babies, my own to miscarriage, I can tell you that while uh, it is some small comfort to know that they are at rest, to know that they're waiting in heaven, me and Polly, go be with them. Hopefully their grandparents will beat them there. No offense. Say hey. It is still a grievous evil to use Solomon's words here, grievous evil, when a parent loses a child. You can't help but ask God, why did you let this child even be conceived if it wasn't even to be born, to live? And in a similar way, Solomon uses that as an analogy here to ask God, why would you even permit this man to have all this wealth, to have this nice big family, to live 2,000 years? The man couldn't even enjoy any of it. And here's the answer, friends. The reason God does it is to try and point us back to him, to God. Here's how Danny Aiken explains it says, perhaps one way God saves those who are rich is by the meaninglessness of the riches that cannot be enjoyed. When you get to the top and you get everything you ever wanted, but you still feel empty inside, then you know that there must be something better and more satisfying out there. God wants to expose our need of him and show us that riches cannot be ultimate. Because nothing but God can ultimately satisfy us. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. Is that your heart this morning? Is it restless? Where is your heart? Where is your joy? Where is your contentment? Where is your satisfaction? This is problem number five. You can't get no satisfaction. Read on, verses 7 through 9. Not if money is your God, your pursuit. Money won't fix your insatiability, your lack of satisfaction. Your thirst will never be quenched. Solomon finally answers our long-anticipated question here. You know, if it's so foolish to let ourselves be enslaved by money, it's pursuit, then why in the world do so many of us do it? Why are we even tempted to go down this dead-end path in the first place? And Solomon's answer is this. All the toil of man is for his mouth, his appetite, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. It is our insatiable appetite for more. And mouth here, don't get tripped up. If that's not your you know, vice of choice, gluttony, overeating, mouth is just a metaphor 
Hebrew verb for eat here is often used in Ecclesiastes as it was in verse 2 above in the broader sense of enjoy, to just enjoy, to consume for the purpose of enjoyment. That can be consuming anything. College football, Cardinals baseball, too soon. It's hevel to trust in the Cardinals. Don't put your hope in them. Money, jewelry, clothes, cars, TV, social media, video games, porn, sex. Maybe it is food for you. Some gluttons here. Or alcohol. Or caffeine. Or nicotine. Or laughter. Comedy. Self-pity. Or praise. Or worry. It's crazy the things that we try and stuff down in our heart. Fill our hearts with. Why? Because our hearts are desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us. Who can understand it? The things we do to our hearts. What is your insatiable craving? What is that thing that your heart can never seem to get enough of? If we went around the room, passed the microphone, our things may be different, but Solomon's point is we've all got one. Verse 8, the wise man has no advantage over the fool when it comes to our idols. You may look down your wealthy nose at the indigent meth addict, but you're just as addicted to the approval of your country club friends. Verse 8, Solomon flips the whole sermon on its head. Well, what does the poor man have? who knows how to conduct himself. He says, okay, look, if money is so dangerous, well, maybe we should just avoid it altogether. Pursue wisdom instead. Solomon says, why? (laughs) So you can be enslaved to wisdom instead? The insatiable longing for more wisdom? It's it's the same problem. There's, There's no escaping it. We're all a slave to something. Jesus called us his slaves, if you follow him servants. We're all a slave to something. Who are you serving? So he warns, Solomon warns in verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. He says, better to see a thing rightly, perhaps that includes noticing, appreciating its attractiveness, the qualities about that thing that God gave it that are good, that make it so tempting for you to want to chase after it as your ultimate thing, But then you also need to see that even if you were to chase it and catch it and get it, you need to see its utter inability to ultimately satisfy you. Otherwise, you're going to blindly follow your wandering appetite all your life. Better to see, you know, that 2023 Corvette zoom on past you and appreciate it. Man, that is a beautiful car. That would make me happy for a couple months. And then I'd, you know, get over it. And I'd be stuck with the payments. And the constant stress every time I parked it in the parking lot that it's going to get dinged, scratched. Not worth it. I'm gonna let, not going to let my wandering appetite go there. Better to see your friend's pictures of their dream vacation and appreciate how amazing that must have been for them without envying them maxing out your credit card to go chase after this fleeting pleasure. See, that's why money is so dangerous because money can actually buy you all those things that your heart is blindly chasing after, wandering after, that you think are going to make you happy. 
but inevitably leave you wanting more, needing a faster car, needing a more luxurious vacation. Because lastly, problem number six, even if you got it all, (laughs) all the money to buy all the stuff, even if you got it all, money won't fix your mortality. Solomon always has a way of bringing it back to death in the end, doesn't he? I was taught that a preacher is supposed to always bring it back to Jesus at the end of the sermon. I guess when you live a thousand years before, the one who alone can fulfill the deepest longings of our heart, the best you can do is bring it back to death, nihilism, hopelessness. But remember, that, that's the beauty and the agony of this wonderful terrifying book we call Ecclesiastes. Solomon is taking us on a journey week by week down every single dead end path that he ever tried in his vain life to find meaning and joy and fulfillment and he's determined by God I will take them far enough down this path until they can see the cliff that I'm about to lead them off of if they don't turn back. Abort. Find a different path. Money is not the answer. And so, here's his conclusion, verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. He says, you think money is power? Man, money is going to open all kinds of doors for me. If I get enough of it, I'll be master of my own fate, my own destiny. Solomon says, you fool. You don't even realize everything that happens to you in your life was already sovereignly ordained before the foundation of the world. (laughs) You don't open any doors. God opens every door, any door that gets open. It's all been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Solomon continues, and it is known what man is. You know what he is? You know what we are? In a word, temporary. You and I are very temporary, mortal, or extremely Mortal, 100% mortality rate in this room, unless Jesus comes back pretty soon for some of y'all. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And what's worse, verse 10, he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Solomon says there's not a thing you can do about it. All the money in the world cannot buy you one more day on this earth. It can't buy you permanence. Not immortality, the immortality that you seek after. He says, God, that's who he's talking about, the one you're disputing with, God, the one stronger than you, the one who fixed the number of your days before you were even born, Job 14, 5. He's not some used car salesman who you can haggle with. Your money is no good with him. It, it, it's the wrong kind of currency. That's, that's material, physical currency. If you are looking to add days to your life, there is a currency. Oh, we're almost there. So verse 11, the more words you use, the more words you use trying to haggle with him, the more hevel you're spewing. And what is the advantage to man? What good is it? What, what good is all your arguing? What good is all your money 
in a conversation with God about how many days he's going to let you live. It's no good. It's no advantage. No eternal advantage to you. And so Solomon concludes in verse 12. Who knows? Who knows? Who really knows what is good for man while he lives? You know, it's interesting. Remember, he concluded chapter 5. Here's what I found is good. How does he conclude chapter 6? Who knows? (laughs) Who knows what is good? really, for a man, while he lives the few days of his vain life. He says, I know I tried to end hopefully. I I just, I had to take you a little farther down the path. And he says, now that I, Solomon, and, and I'm at the end of my own life, my own path, and now that I'm actually the one peering out over that eternal cliff, death, Solomon says, I'm not so sure anymore. Who knows what's good? Who can say, was it good? Was it good to live it up for 70, 80, 90 years? If you're just going to die in the end anyway, what's the point? In the grand scheme of eternity, our few days in this vain life just pass like a mere shadow, he says. That's all we are. We are hevel. In a word, what is man? We're hevel. Smoke, vapor. And worst of all, we don't even know what's going to come next. That's where he ends. None, none of us can see all the way to the bottom of the cliff to know what comes next. For who can tell man what will be after him? No one. Not in Solomon's day. If you want a good word picture to summarize his whole point here, he says, putting your hope in money is like standing at the edge of that infinite cliff and throwing bills, paper, money off the edge, hoping that it's going to soften your fall to the bottom. And that's where Solomon leaves us. Again, because he preached a thousand years for the solution to all six of these problems would arrive. His name's Jesus. Are you looking for someone this morning who can fix your relationships? Maybe you're here, you've got a bunch of broken relationships. No sense of belonging. Jesus calls you his family. He wants to call you his family, his brother, his sister. You want someone who can fix your suffering. Jesus promised he came to overcome all the suffering of this world and give us peace. You want someone who can fix your joylessness. Jesus promises all who abide in his love that my joy will be in you so that your joy may be full. You want someone who can fix your restlessness? Jesus invites you this morning, come to me, all you who labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You want someone who can fix your insatiability, satisfy your insatiability? Jesus declared, I am the bread of life.
whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst. Most of all, do you want someone, do you need someone who can fix your mortality? Let me rephrase that. You need someone who can fix your mortality. Jesus promises, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you trust in money, you are going to be eternally disappointed. Trust in Jesus this morning, you will be eternally fulfilled.